Yes, today I am joined by screenwriter, producer Rodney Barnes. What's going on, Rodney? Nothing much. What's going on with you? Everything is good. Everything is good. Thanks for joining me. Taking time out of your busy schedule. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. So, um, tell me a little about. Tell me, um, how was it going to a couple HBCU schools? Uh, it was great. I mean, for me. My college life is kind of divided into two parts. The okay. uh, first part where I tried to be an athlete and fail. And the second part when I decided I wanted to be a creative. And uh, the first part is on me failing as an athlete. But the second part, I'd have to say that being in an HBCU, right. being especially going to Howard, and you had so many people who have – accomplished so much in right. creative space it was inspiring right. it was a good thing so after you left college how was it when you started writing uh, uh that's a big question uh which part i mean um there's a lot of stuff between yes. college and writing when so, you started when you started off i'm sorry when you started off a, um how was your experience with um with um damon williams how did that impact your career uh, Damon was my career. I mean, I met Damon on a movie, Major Pain, when I was a production assistant. And he kind of taught me the psychological bridge between being outside of the business and what it takes to be a part of the business. And we wouldn't be having this conversation right now had it not been for Damon. Uh, very vital, very instrumental. Yeah, I believe everyone in everyone's journey, there's someone that you attribute part of your success too to help you get to where you're going. I definitely have some in my, on my journey so far. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of somebodies. Definitely. So after um, you did my wife and kids, you went to the you did the Boondocks and also everybody hates Chris like like at the same time. How was that transition? Because those are two uh, big shows that. <laughs> well, I did uh, the I started the Boondocks while. Uh, wife and kids was happening and it just continued into everybody hates Chris past everybody hates Chris. Um, I just had, it was look at it like two jobs. If right. you have, and I've had two jobs a lot of times in my life, it was like having two jobs. I would leave one and go to the other. Right. Um, creatively. It was great though. I mean, being able to um, go from being, cause there's a sense of desperation when you have, crossed into what you want to do that you wonder are you ever going to be able to you know right. make it and then once you start doing it, that's a whole nother roller coaster all together of all right i'm in it i want to stay in it and so i don't think i actually enjoyed it as much as i probably should have because right. i was too busy worried about you know when is it going to end but it was rewarding being able to do both at the same time while you're doing the boondocks, you're able to work along with um, John Witherspoon. Can you talk on the loss that we all... Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the biggest loss with John uh, isn't just him as a performer. I mean, guys like John and guys like John, they carry so much information. You right. Know, their wealth of wisdom. And, you know, John was a dramatic actor, um, legendary comedic actor. And guys like that that have just weathered so many storms to still be relevant till the end. Right. Um, you know, when you lose a guy like that, it's like losing, you know, an institution. And you only hope that someone fills in and, you know, fills in the void, but it's damn near impossible. 
your career spans over, I believe, 25 years. Mm-hmm. In that time, how, how has producing and writing changed over that time period that you've noticed hands-on? Uh, it changed for me or changed Overall, general? Overall, both, both. Both aspects. Uh, I mean, for me, start off as a writer. Um, it's almost like you have to have something in order to, to get a job, to be able to stay in it. But there's so much to learn that as I evolve and like, for instance, a wife and kids, I was just a writer. Right. I sat in the chair and I pitched ideas and everybody hates Chris. You know, all of that voiceover that you heard in the show, I wrote that. I placed it in the show. I recorded it with Chris Rock. Um, I'd never done anything like that before in my life. You did a good job. Um, you did a good job. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate it. But, you know, and being able to, uh, you know, with every job, you step up, hopefully, to right. more and more responsibility and doing more. So as a producer, you're actually earning that title of producer as much as practically as much as you are just having the title. Right. As far as the game itself, I mean, producing, I mean, I think um, there's a lot more of it being done today. Um, 25 years ago, we didn't have as many channels, you know, technology right. isn't what it was. You didn't have streaming the way that you had. People weren't watching um, product on their phones and tablets and, you know, you didn't, it, there's so much more content being made. So the idea of being a producer is sort of broadened from just someone who gets movies and TV shows made to damn near anyone who can hustle their way into the industry. I mean, you have people who make, who make things for social media, right? you know, so the game has changed. It's opened up more so than anything else. Coming from Maryland, how was your transition to Los Angeles? Uh, wow. It was, there were good aspects to it because I think I developed work ethic. Like I wasn't a part of the industry. I didn't have, I didn't understand, I didn't understand necessarily how it worked. So I had to learn that part, but I did have work ethic because when you come from where I came from, you know, even when we were little kids, we were hustling jobs. Right. So that same work ethic that I took from there, I brought here. Um, I think sometimes when you're born into the industry or born into L.A., you kind of you're also born into the social aspect of it, too. So when you're in the social part of it, it's hard to be in working part of it at the same time. Some people can do it. I'm not very good at it. So as far as work ethic concerned, I think Maryland helped me. Okay. I think not knowing how it worked, uh, pros and cons to it. You know, you kind of, there's a fearless approach because there are things that you're not supposed to do right. that I did and they work for me. And if someone had told me before that, hey, don't do that, don't say that to him or don't do this, I probably would have shied away. But the ignorance sort of worked for me. Over your career, you've worked with a lot of celebrities. Were you ever starstruck when you started working with them? No, I think um, I was always able because I was a production assistant, you know, working as a PA right. and an AD assistant director, it's you sort of get to see how sausage is made. So if you're someone who just your only relationship to celebrity is what you see on the screen, right. that's one thing. But if you actually get to work with people and you realize no matter how big the star is, just a person. Yeah, yes. 
it kind of takes away that uh, whole, oh my God, it's so-and-so. It's like I have probably the people that right. I look up to and idolize in the way that you you frame that question are probably people who are like writers that no one knows or authors or people who are more obscure and the fandom comes more from how are you able to be so prolific? Because I know how hard it is to manage a, a life along with a real life along with a working life, that type of thing. But as far as like seeing a big star, um, you know, by the way that Hollywood says star and being starstruck, right. I say appreciator is more so than, you know, than anything else. I appreciate anybody who's good at what they do. Um, it's hard not to, because it's hard to get good at anything. Yes. So, but as far as looking at somebody and freezing, uh, I'm, I'm not that new. Yeah, I definitely I def feel what you're saying because when I first started doing this, when I first started, I was a little in awe with some people started meeting. But as I, as a couple more interviews kept coming and coming, I got used to whoever it was, no matter how big they were, like from interviewing people from the Basketball Hall of Fame to having them on the show, they're just normal people like everyone else. No, it actually gets in the way. It's like um, the most people, I think celebrities have a tendency sometimes to put you in one category of, okay, this is a cool person I can deal with, or this right. is a fan. Right. And with the fan thing, they have to believe, they have to behave like you believe them to be. Right. Whereas if they're a real person, you can just, you know, nine times out of 10, just start talking to them like a regular person. Cause that's who they are. They just do that one thing that you like. And it happens to be on TV. Like when you say basketball, right. I got a lot of friends that are former players of players and you know, it's just people. Right. Over your career, have you earned some top honors from the BZ comedy awards, NAACP image. Um, how was it when those awards came and was it fulfilling knowing that your hard work was paying off? Um, I say I'll, it's always great to be recognized for what you do, but I think for me, it's a different standard. I'm more motivated by. It's almost like a lot of the stuff was early in my career, uh -huh. so I wasn't able to really appreciate it in the same way that I am now. Okay, because um, I was too scared i mean my first 10 years of my career i worried that i wasn't gonna have a career okay same you know i always worried that at some because then what people don't get when you come from a place of a job you know you go to work you fill out an application you get a job and you do that job until either they fire you or you decide to quit right hollywood if you work on movies every three months you're unemployed you gotta find a new job and on TV shows, you may last the season. So every five months, you could be unemployed unless you're on a hit and that lasts from year to year. And then you got to hope that they bring you back with the show when the show comes back that next year. Right. So getting into coming from, you know, doing it like most people do it, making that transition to how Hollywood works, it's almost like you're in the circus. You know, you go from city to city and, you know, you hope people come out to what you do. And it took a while for me to get comfortable with the idea that I would be able to continuously find work. Cause I know guys who were on a show and never worked again. Wow. And talented people, like really talented people. Right. And it's for whatever reason, they had the wrong agent or they had the wrong presentation or they didn't do enough spec work or whatever right. it is. And I never wanted that to happen to me. 
Right. So I always live with that fear in the back of my mind because when you come from a place, you know, coming from Maryland, California wasn't my home. Right. So if it didn't work, I had to go back to Maryland. <clears throat> and I didn't want to do that. So nothing against Maryland, but right. I wanted to stay in the business. So, you know, that was a constant fear. Um, that still manifests from time to time, but not in the same way. Out of all the many productions you've done, has any stuck out on your mind? Like this was one of your favorite ones you've done? Or you've done so many you never paid attention um, to? No, I pay attention to it. I mean, I think it's mostly, you have some shows that, it's mostly the people. You right. know, if you vibe with a good group of people, um, and you usually carry people with you from each show um, that become just part of your family, um, it's mostly that. I mean, all of them, have given me something. Even the ones that were bad gave me something right. to take away. You know. So your love for comics, how did that help your career grow? Uh, it helped me grow as a person. I mean, I started, I wasn't so much a Curious George or, you know, the cat in the hat kind of Dr. Seuss guy. I was a comic right. book guy. So my mother used to, my mother was a school teacher for 45 years. So when I was a little kid, I would go to the library with her when she would do her lesson plans. And I knew the area. I don't know how it happened, but I knew where they kept the comic books. And I would sit there all day and read comic books. And sort of had an obsessive uh, personality. So I had to find out where outside of the library you get comic books. And back then you had them at every drugstore liquor store like everybody had that spiral of comic books right and then it became something that was outside of the library but it had it was something about those stories and superheroes in general that just appealed to me and i'd say my moral code my um how i learned to read how i learned graphic storytelling um just the sense of imagination that just kind of pushed boundaries um, that probably wouldn't have happened had I just stayed in a conventional reading, like, you know, reading the stuff that they tell you to read in school right? Um, versus reading because I want to read was created a, an emotional attachment to creativity that spawned into what I do now. Speaking of comics, one of your latest ventures, Philadelphia, was the name, I like the name. It, it reaches out to the um to the crime rate in Philadelphia. Everyone calls Philadelphia Philadelphia sometimes. Your thought process in this project, what went into that? Uh, Philadelphia has been in my head for probably since I was a kid. That was an old show, Cole Shack Night Stalker. And in one of the episodes, yeah, he was a reporter who um, kind of solved paranormal crimes. And there was one written by the great matheson about a vampire he was on the tail of a vampire and i loved that episode it was a movie of the week actually before it became a tv show and in my mind i always wondered why we didn't have anything like that in our culture really like uh we had blackula that was the closest you know those types of things but it never never we had horror or suspense or anything like that it never felt like the stakes were quite as high so over the years i developed it i tried to make it a movie i tried to make it a tv show i tried to make it a bunch of different things and change it changed and it never would sell for whatever reason 
And then uh, once I started writing comics, I said, let me try this as a comic book. And met Jason Sean Alexander five years prior to and pitched the idea to him. And he agreed to uh, illustrate it. And we pitched it to Image and the rest was history. During writing, um, publishing comic books, how good, how, what's the main thing in finding the right publisher when you're doing that? Well, right publisher is relative. You know, anybody that says yes is the right publisher. I think uh, in today's market, you know. (laughs) I understand. uh, Yeah, because we went to everybody. I mean, you have a lot of great companies, but Image is the top independent. You know, they distribute the most books independently outside of Marvel and DC. So that's the place you sort of kind of want to be for an idea like this. And you can retain all of your rights if you decide you want to go to movies or TV. So Image was always the place that we originally targeted. If they had said no, then we would have gone to one of the other publishers. Nothing against them. Right. Um, it's just the process. You know, everybody has a submissions process and you kind of have to, um, you know, go through that if you're going to get to sell your, your idea. Okay, you're working well. You have a new project coming up with um dealing on HBO with the Showtime Lakers from the 80s. What's uh-huh. your thought on that? So, we want to know the Showtime Showtime Lakers led by Magic Johnson, the leading scorer of NBA, or Matt, um, Kareem Du Jabbar, our leading scorer. So what's your thought process on this project? Oh, you know, I'm excited to be a part of it. I grew up in that era. Um, that's when I probably was my fandom was at its height. Um, before, you know, coming from where I came from, we had the Bullets. And Washington you had Bullets. local, yeah, Baltimore before that. But, um, you know, they came on local TV, very rarely on national TV. Okay. And the championship was uh, recorded. Like, it wasn't like it is now, where primetime TV. So when Magic and, uh, Magic and Bird came into the NBA, it became like primetime TV. You know, it became basketball sort of took a step up and a jump up and we're sort of telling the story of that era of not just basketball but regulations um the media because cable television came into play um everything that was happening in america at the time between carter and the reagan administration the gas lines and you know crack at some point and all of the other things in the backdrop of la um in general in America as well. But, um, you know, it's a big story. It's a story that's not just about basketball, but at the end of the day, it comes back to basketball. That's, that's the game. Yeah. Every, every aspect. Can't wait for that. <laughs> yeah, it should be fun. Yes. In your opinion, what's the, um, what's, what's the importance of being persistent in anything that you do? One story sticks out of my mind is about Andre Ingram. He plays for the um, Lakers NBA G League team. He's been in the league for 11 years. And it took 11 years for him to get his call up to the NBA. And when he got that chance, he shined. He put up like 19.5 three-pointers. What's, what's your thoughts on always staying persistent and not giving up? Because all we all know on the journey, it's going to be valleys and hills, and you got to keep pushing through if you really want to make it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, um, you know, when I came to L.A., I lived in my car. And I know there are a lot of times when I thought about giving up along the way. And a lot of times when I – broke in you know i've had my heart broken a bunch of times and things just not go well right and i think 
the thing that I take and I, I credit my grandmother with this more than anybody else is, you know, I have a dogged determination that I'm not going to quit. You know, I make a lot of mistakes. Some of them really stupid. Got a lot of insecurities, got a lot of fears and all of that. But at the end of the day, I my best to just keep fighting a good fight. It's not easy, you know, um, but right. it's a metaphor for life. I mean, I think your approach to life is sort of your approach to whatever your dream is. Right. If um, you can evolve as a person, if you have the awareness to be able to see what your shortcomings um are and I've been blessed to have people in my life who have pointed things out to me that I needed to change. I think right. it's not so much just persistence. I think as much it's as much surrounding yourself with the right people. people. And you know, by that it doesn't mean like stars or anything like that. But people that'll be honest with you about you and people who have your best interests at heart. Right. I think we're all, you know, none of us are perfect and we all fall short. And I think people who will hang in there with you and fight the good fight, um, especially if you have a dream, are the people that you need to hold on to. Right. And that's rare to find those people. Yeah. One thing I've learned is patience. I have patience before, but doing this, I had to have more patience because sometimes you think you do a move and it's going to lead to this and it doesn't lead to it as soon as you think it does. Patience plays a big part in this also. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've struggled so many times with uh, – I'm a naturally impatient person okay. uh, with myself and circumstances. And this business tends to make you uh, very impatient. And I, I think over time I've developed a little bit more that people who would hear this and laugh like you patient. <laughs> um, but there is a certain kind of um, persistence under that patience. Like, you know, I'm patient, but not with things that don't um, move the needle. It's like if I fail, because you hear no, 90%, you're talking to me about the times that people have said yes to. Right. I've probably got 90% no and 10% yes over the course of my career. I understand and fully. emotionally, I've had to be able to take that no, not personalize it to the point where I take it so personal that it cripples you, because right. no can cripple you. It right. can make you feel like, you know, why am I doing this? Yeah. And it can shake your confidence. If you have the ability to not, I'd be lying if I said shrug it off because I, I don't shrug it off. I do carry it with me, but not to the place where it stops me from doing what I got to do. Right. I keep pushing. And I think, um, again, it comes back to your foundation. It comes back to the people who really care about you and who you care about um, and your ability to just keep moving forward, regardless of how hard the punch is. <laughs> Definitely. Wise well, words because you just said some truth. <laughs> You got to push through. Yeah. You were standing in the Green Mile. That is a good movie. How, <laughs> tell us about that experience. Um, I wanted to meet Stephen King because he's my favorite author. Uh, I wanted to meet him badly. And I figured out a way to sneak onto the set when they were going through auditions. And I met Frank Darabont, who was the director. Right. And he appreciated how badly I wanted to be part of the production that he made me a stand-in before they even cast the role. I'm big and black. The lead character was big and black. So eventually right. they're going to end up with a big black man. So I was uh, there through the auditions from day one to the last day. And uh, it changed my life. It changed my life from just being able to see. I'd never been 
up close and personal to a big production. I've worked on big productions before, but I'm so far away from the actual production. Like when you're a PA, they send you to get sodas and, you know, you're locking up doors. You don't really see up right. close sometimes. But as a stand-in, you're there setting up the shot. So, and eventually they let me do off-camera work. Right. So I'm working with Tom Hanks. I'm working with, you know, Michael yeah. Jeter, all the great actors that are there. And I'm getting an opportunity once you get past the um, the awe of being in that position um, and you're able to pay attention um, and learn. I was able to absorb a lot from that and understand the amount of uh, focus and commitment you have to have in order to be there. Right. I think that's the only thing that really separates um, things that aren't done well to things that are done well is the amount of focus and attention that you can apply to a thing. And that was one of those productions that kind of, you know, taught me something. Right. And that production, that production, your time on the Green Mile helps your career, didn't it? It helped me. I mean, when you say help, the things that helped me most are the things that helped me think better. Right. That's not a good sentence, but I hope it makes sense. It's like anytime I get information about myself or about the process, I'm able to use that information. I'd say it's my only superpower that right. I may make a hell of a lot of mistakes, but if somebody pulls my coat to something, I'm typically able to take that information and apply it. Okay. So in that way, coming off of that experience, I sort of got closer to, to me as a creative, the most valuable thing is developing your voice, right. what you want to do, what, what emotionally speaks to you. And I knew for me, being on that experience, that I wanted to write genre horror drama. That's what I wanted to be in at the time. And my first opportunities were all comedy. And I appreciate those. Without those, you wouldn't. Without the first half of my career, you wouldn't have the second half of my career. Right. But I had to figure out, you know, what I wanted to be. And being on shows like that, doing work like that, being in an environment emotionally, you can feel a thing that I didn't necessarily always feel when I was doing comedy. So in that way, it helped me develop my voice. Writing comics and drama, which one takes more out of you? Um, It all takes something out of me. I, I think it's equal because if you really care, I mean, you give it all whatever you do. Yeah, if you pour yourself into something, if you give me a job to do, and right. I've had to do jobs because I got bills, right? that, you know, I'm just going through, it's like cutting the grass. You're just doing the work. But if you do something that you really care about, like, you know, Philadelphia, I'm pouring so many aspects of my life into this book, right. and you want it to be received in the way that you're executing it, that, you know, it, it takes an emotional toll as much as a psychological toll. So... And just the toll of actually, you know, shutting the door and sitting down and actually writing. Um, but the reward is that much higher when people do, you know, higher when people do. It's like uh, when it's received well and you put your heart into it, it sort of um, validates all of the effort and energy and heartache that goes into doing this. Right. Because you want people to like it. You want it to be received. Definitely. Well, What's your th- what's your thoughts on once you get in once you get into a certain position to give back to help someone up the ladder? Uh, it's relative. I mean, I think you should always find 
here's the thing, you know, everybody feels like you should give them something. Not everybody's a candidate for the thing that they necessarily want. And it's not my job to tell them that they can or they can't. Right. I think the thing is, you know, oftentimes writers come to me and they say, read my script or help me with this or help me with that. Right. And typically it's the approach that has a lot to do with whether or not I try to take that on. Because the more you take on, there's something you're not doing right. while you're giving. Gotcha. And that person that you're giving to, there's a responsibility in that person too to do an aspect of the work. Because sometimes people come to you and they say, hey, do this for me. Right. Make it easier for me. And I think it's always important to give. I think it's always important to be honest as well in that process of giving. And oftentimes people don't want to hear, you know, they want you to tell them their work is great. Right. <laughs> and, the truth. you know, it's not always great. And then when you tell them that it's not great, then something's wrong with you. Now you got an enemy. So I think finding the right candidates for said help um, is, is as important an aspect of the process as just, um, you know, gen and, unless you're talking when we I'm talking specifically about screenwriting. Okay. As far as giving in general, I think you can. I work with my kids back in my hometown at this elementary school that I went to. Um, you know, I think you can generally give to anyone at any time. Right. But if you're talking about the business itself, um, you know, you got to you got to seek out people at times who have aptitude for it, you know, because it's more than just the wanting to do it. It's uh, it's tough, man. This is a tough business. I mean, your range is so wide. How was it doing the um, Wu-Tang Clan, Clan on American Saga? How was that? Oh, uh, Wu Tang was cool. I mean, I love working with, <coughs> excuse me, with RZA, <coughs> and um, the show just got picked up. Hopefully, I'll be back again. Um, I can juggle a couple more shows, but um, I dug it. It was fun. It was cold in Staten Island. Right. Uh, <laughs> that part wasn't fun. Um, I guess they call it brick. It was. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not built at this stage. I'm not built for brick. My body. <laughs> Got it. I just one well, a couple of days I was standing out there. I was like, man, I can't wait to get back. <laughs> but um, the process itself is great. People, a lot of fun. Um, again, it's one of those times where great people just make it so much more pleasurable to do. Right. I'm a firm believer in things happen when they're supposed to happen. And how do you feel about would you do anything differently in your life? Like me, I, I think everything lined up perfectly because I think back, if this would have happened back a year ago, I wouldn't be at this point here or this point here. I think everything lines up when supposed I to. Think, I think I agree with you. I mean, I think that there are mistakes that I've made. Anytime a decision I made hurt somebody, hurt someone's feelings, right. I always wish I could take that back. Okay. Um, you know, anytime that I've come up short as a person, I always look to it and say, damn, I wish I hadn't have done that or said that or whatever. That said, um, sometimes I've paid a price that had I not paid, I wouldn't have been able to uh, evolve and get to a place like you said, where, you know, maybe that was a lesson I needed to learn. Right. You know, maybe that was something that I needed in order to move forward. Or maybe that person needed at that time um, as well. So, you know. Most of, you know, if you ask me as far as the emotional part, would I take things back? 
yes when it came to you know hurting somebody else but no when it came to the process that I had to go through because had it been easier for me I think when the heartache came I wouldn't know what I wouldn't know what to do with it okay you know it's like I the ass whoopings that you take in this business sometimes are necessary for the bigger ones to come because they keep coming they right. never stop coming right every once in a while you walk around the corner somebody's gonna punch you in the face emotionally right. with a no you something's gonna be taken from you and if you're not able to adjust to that um you know you you you're done exactly a short while ago, we all received a massive loss in the NBA. Kobe Bryant passed away tragically, which affected everyone, not just in not just in the NBA. What's your thoughts on the loss of Kobe Bryant? Um, I was shocked. I actually drove by, um, like a mile from where the crash site was that morning, and didn't know what all the commotion was. Wow. Um, uh, it's like it's not real. It's, it's almost like at some point, it's not that, it's like it's not real. I you know, it's like the, the whole day I was on, because it wasn't on ESPN, but we're talking about it on Twitter and send a text. And um, Rick Fox is one of our uh, consultants on the Lakers show. Okay. And there was a rumor that he was on the helicopter for a minute. Yeah. So I'm texting him. Like, dude, are you okay? You okay? Right. Rick's a great guy. So I was worried about him too. And then eventually he texted me that, you know, he was okay and uh, obviously upset about what happened. Right. But you realize because Los Angeles is so segregated, you know, it's like little islands of people that come together for a common cause. And the Lakers were one of those things. And Kobe Bryant being the centerpiece of the Lakers for so long, you realize that sports in general, uh, sports in particular, but the Lakers and Kobe in particular was so much a part of what Los Angeles and by proxy America in the world. Right. Um, you know, you don't realize it until you get into this situation. And I'm like, I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes for a guy I never met. Right. I'm, you know, I, was I just the same watched way. them. Yes. I just watched them play, you know, appreciated the play. And sometimes I'm a Lakers fan and sometimes I'm not a Lakers fan. But still, there's a general respect that you right. have for someone who has worked so hard to become so great at something right. that to just be gone. And then you find out his daughter and I got daughters. Yes. And, yeah. you know, it's then you put yourself in that position and the other people that were in the helicopter, and that, those families that are affected. And it's like it just keeps growing and growing. Right. The human part of it. And so, you know, I think I was stunned. The people around me were stunned um, still in a sense of, you know, every once in a while you have to be reminded, like I see I watch First Take every morning. Okay. And every once in a while they'll start talking about it. It's like, oh, yeah, that happened. You know, like it's not real, you know, in a sense, because people who are larger than life and Kobe was larger than life. And you had this feeling that he was going to go on and do such great things. Um, I did. It's like, you know, he just won an Oscar and he was such a, when you can bring that competitive fire from sports into the creative space, um, that's sort of what you need in order to be able to make it through is that ability to fight and withstand the opposition. And it's nothing but opposition that, 
I believe that he would have, you know, matched what he did in the entertainment business that he did with uh, sports. Yes. And it's just a huge loss, man. It's just a huge loss. It, it's hard to put into words. Um, it's, um, it's still something that hurts. It's just something that hurts. It's just a tragic, tragic thing. Yes, that was my biggest thing. When I first heard about it, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a joke. Like someone was playing yeah, a bad joke on the internet, those, uh, a hoax. Yeah, like, it was one of those hoax things, yeah. Yeah, and then sort of follow, um, <laughs> sources started coming out. I was like, I just, I lost it. I'm not going <laughs> to, it was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. It's like I literally sat there for, and I was on deadline for something, and I just texted, um, my boss and I was like, right. dude, I ain't gonna be able to finish this today. And I just sat there for the entire day, like glued to the TV, like some information was gonna change. Like yeah. and I think the big thing was, is it real? Right. You know, because like you said, there's so many hoaxes and you hope that it's that this, you know, somebody just playing a bad joke or something. But you know, that brother was just so determined that it's hard to right. if you've ever been in sports before and you understand the nature of the business and what it takes to train your mind you know the body everybody in the nba got a good body to lesser rated degrees right but to train your mind to be able to be great over time for that long um that's something to be respected at the very least and it just feels like an incredible loss it is an incredible loss it definitely is it definitely is on a brighter note, the Lakers are on the way to ending their um, six-year playoff drought led by LeBron. You think they have what it takes to win the championship this year? I don't know. Um, I would have felt better. I think Rob Palenka deserves a lot of credit for putting the team together with just at the last minute, feeling right. like the pieces came together. He found the best pieces, you know, Danny Green and, and all of those guys to complement AD and LeBron. LeBron yeah. The thing is, though, when I look at what Clippers have, I know they don't have as good a record as the Lakers do. But getting Morris the other day, yeah, and off the, the way, yeah, the way Jerry West is able to, you know, and uh, to put those pieces together, yeah, it's like, all right, you may have the best record, but over the course of a seven-game series, and you got to play in the same, you yeah. got the best bench, you got. You know, Kawhi and Paul George are special. Yes. Not to say, you know, LeBron, all right, let's say LeBron and AD are special and Kawhi and um, Paul George are special. All right, all right, we can get the special off the table. Now, when you start looking at the bench and you start looking at the scheme, yes, you know, and you got in the coaching uh, section, you've got Doc Rivers, Ty Lu, you know, championship coaches. Yes. And Sam Cassell, you know, you've got, experience there and off the bench Lou and, Williams <laughs> yeah and you got you know Jason Kidd and you've got uh Frank Vogel on the other side nothing against them but right. it just feels like what the Clippers have assembled yeah is formidable at the very least yeah. and so for Kobe and for the Lakers and all of that sentimentally I would yeah. love to see the Lakers win because I'd yes. like to see the city be acknowledged and that part of me that is idealistic would right. love for the spirit of Kobe to infuse itself into the Lakers and for them to go on a legendary run. Yeah. There's that. And then there's this other thing over there when you look at the Clippers and you say, man, they really have assembled a great cast. And it seems to be built from the ground up. Yeah. 
These these playoffs yeah. are going to be crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's like I look at Rondo and I say, all right, you got Quinn Cook, you got Rondo. Um, who else is running? You got LeBron running the point, but LeBron is a forward. And even though he's got his assists are up and he's playing great basketball, one of the greatest basketball players ever, but yeah, how much are you going to be able to ask him to do? Yeah, they're supposed to work on J.R. Smith this upcoming week. So, yeah, help with yeah, Tremor, Tremor, the shooting. Well, I remember J.R. Smith yeah. getting the rebound and <laughs> running the wrong way. I remember that's the last eight yeah, years. Man, as soon as you yeah. said J.R. Smith, <laughs> I think about him running the wrong direction. I yeah, that last play. With... <laughs> I was uh, one of the writers on the NBA Awards, and uh, I wanted to put that joke in the NBA Awards so bad. It was a bit that I had about uh, J.R. Smith. Jaron Smith is physically a great basketball player. <laughs> yeah, Jaron Smith, Smith was on my favorite team, the different Nuggets. I remember him. Yeah. If he gets hot, he's hot. When he misses, oh, he's, he's misses. He, he can dunk from the half-court line. He can do all kinds of shit, but he right. can't get the rebound and go in the wrong direction. Yeah, so that was... what do I do then? <laughs> uh, how's your experience writing for the NBA Awards? Well, uh, with the NBA it was Awards. cool. It was, was for, um, it was for Anthony Anderson. Uh, who hosted uh, okay. was his writer uh, okay. help writing the uh, you know the um, his monologue right and uh, J.R. Smith was in the audience oh man I wanted to write a J.R. Smith <laughs> but uh, but yeah and it was right after that too it was like a week after that okay. so it was fresh in my mind yeah LeBron was hot <laughs> oh I was, was everybody crazy. was hot everybody was hot <laughs> oh Ronnie thank you so much for joining me man this was good I have to have you back you're on when you're free. I know your schedule's busy. I definitely respect out at a different time. Trying to get Just you back on, know. man. Definitely. Just let me know. Definitely will. Thank you so much for your busy time. You're welcome, brother. I know you got more lined up. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. All right, man. Take man. it easy. You're you welcome. too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yes, that was screenwriter, producer, Rodney Barnes. So NBA background. Thanks for joining me. Catch you next time.